I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound Off with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Busy Friday. We've got exclusive interviews with Stacey Abrams, the former Democratic gubernatorial nominee for Georgia. Her reaction to the lawsuit between the governor and the Atlanta mayor. Plus, we're going to check in with Michael Easter. He's a health journalist. He's the author of the forthcoming book, The Comfort Crisis. And now he is a professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He's got this incredible, incredible article in Outside Magazine about whether or not your fitness tracker might be able to predict COVID-19. And A.B. Stoddard for a half hour. I've got so many questions for her uh, on 2020 on the reset in the Trump campaign. We begin tonight with an issue uh, regarding mail-in voting. And it's a topic that we're going to be talking about much more in the coming weeks. But we had to get right to the the individual, the policymaker, who's really been at the forefront of all of this. Her name is Stacey Abrams. She is the founder of Fair Fight and the 2018 Democratic nominee for Georgia governor. And she finds herself in... A, a, a situation where you've got Governor Brian Kemp, a Republican, filing a lawsuit uh, against uh, Keisha Lance Bottom, and the, she's the mayor of Atlanta, a Democrat. And it's just this back and forth. And then you got Stacey Abrams, who, of course, is, is a vice presidential uh, f- a short on the short list for vice president for Joe Biden. So anyway, it, it's a it's a fascinating conversation in the sense that you really get a sense of where she's at on the Veep search, on mail in voting, and on coronavirus as a whole. Uh, let's let's take a listen. Here's Stacey Abrams. Leader Abrams, we are thrilled to have you with us. But first, let's get to pressing matters because Governor Brian Kemp, a Republican, on Thursday filing a lawsuit against the Atlanta city mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, a Democrat, regarding the face mask mandate. How is this going to impact the potential spread of the coronavirus in the state of Georgia? It's going to exacerbate that spread. We know that Georgia already is among the 18 states facing the hardest resurgence. We know that more than 130,000 Georgians have contracted the disease. As of today, 3,000 have died. We know there's a disproportionate effect on communities of color. And we know that this mask mandate or the refusal to allow one will simply go against both CDC guidelines and the unpublished uh, mandate, the unpublished recommendations of the White House, which says that mandating masks make us safer and help stop the disease from spreading. 
All right, and now let's get to something that you are very much working on, and that is the issue of access to voting in the November 3rd election. How can we assure Americans that mail-in votes will be counted on November 3rd? First, we have to guarantee that they have the right to vote by mail. We have 34 states that allow vote by mail with no excuses, meaning anyone can do it, but we have 16 states that put restrictions on it. And unfortunately, we have a president who is doing his level best to undermine the integrity of the process. He, in a very erratic way, said that he doesn't believe in mail-in balloting, but he believes in absentee ballots, which are the exact same thing. He has spread this lie about voter fraud being exacerbated by mail-in balloting, which is wholly untrue. The states that have used this have been able to demonstrate time and again this is not a problem. But we also have inaction by the U.S. Senate until they approve the HEROES Act, which will give $3.6 billion to cash-strapped states to allow them to expand vote by mail and scale it up to what we know is going to be necessary in the midst of COVID-19, as proven by primary usage, then we will not be able to guarantee that people get that right to vote, let alone that those votes can be counted. Leader Abrams, when I interview Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill, it feels like that act that you alluded to is going to be falling upon partisan lines. So what does the government need to do in spite of that in order to make sure that the ballots are counted? And what institutional structural changes need to be made immediately, really, ahead of November 3rd? Well, the structural requirements are three. One, we have to have expanded access to, to mail-in ballots. Number two, we have to have expanded access to early voting in the states that do not permit it. And number three, we have to have preservation of in-person voting on Election Day without a reduction in polling places. The HEROES Act will accomplish all three of those things by giving the states the resources they need. And the reality, this isn't a partisan issue. We have Republican secretaries of state, like Michael Adams in Kentucky, who has said that vote by mail is the safest way to vote. We've got Democrats who've been calling out the same. And we know that states across this country are being forced to slash their budgets because of the COVID pandemic. And that the reason we have a United States of America, the reason we have a federal system, is that it's the responsibility of the federal government to step in in moments of crisis like a pandemic and support the states in executing the constitutionally required November election. These are things ever, that can be done, but we have to put aside partisanship to make sure it happens. Should every American get a mail-in ballot in the mail without having to request one? Every American who is eligible to vote should receive a ballot that is postage paid. That is absolutely the right thing to do. That would be the gold standard. But I live Our in reality. And so what I'm asking for is that we remove as many of the barriers as possible, that we put guardrails in place to ensure that everyone who wants to vote by mail can do so. However, we have to remember that not everyone can or should vote by mail. If you are disabled, if you have a language barrier, if you have legitimate, if, there, if you are homeless, if you've been displaced by COVID, there are a number of communities that simply don't have the right or the capacity to vote by mail, and they need to be able to go in person. And that's why we can't simply focus on vote by mail. We have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, do vote by mail, in-person early voting, and election day voting without a closure of precincts. I hear you on this, Leader Abrams, but but I got to press you here because we're just, you know, a couple of months away from, from the election. And, you know, I'm curious whether or not the bureaucracy uh, in the federal government 
you know, at the U.S. Postal Service, for example, whether or not they're actually prepared to handle the influx number of ballots that could be coming their way. How do we guarantee that the institutions that are really going to be on the front lines of counting uh, the, the, the votes for democracy are adequately prepared for the potential of a massive increase in mail-in votes? We start now. We make certain that our Congress acts now. The House has taken action. If the Senate passes the HEROES Act, it includes the guardrails we need, includes the resources we need to make certain that the U.S. Postal Service isn't weaponized by Donald Trump to block access to the right to vote. It ensures that states and local governments have the resources they need to scale up absentee balloting. It ensures that we have the poll workers we need to do this process. But we also have to tell people it's going to take longer than 11 p.m. on election night to know the answer. When in the midst of crisis, we have to adapt. And that adaptation is not only possible, it is necessary. We also know that every single state in the country has the capacity and the infrastructure for mail-in voting. This is about scale, not about capacity. And if we get the resources to scale this up, as Vice President Biden has called for, as Republicans and Democrats have called for, if we do what Tom Ridge, a Republican, has called for, and what good Democrats and Republicans are calling for across the country, we can make this work. But we have to have a president who actually believes in our democracy and leans away from his cowardice and his ignorance and actually works for Americans for once. You said something right there about the expectation of not necessarily getting the vote on 11 p.m. on election night. How might this change the way that Americans get their election results, practically speaking? Well, practically speaking, we have to pay attention to the fact that in Wisconsin, in Georgia, in New York, it's going to take a minute. But if we have done the work on the front end, if we have stopped this partisan undermining of the process, if we have recognized the legitimacy of voter suppression and done our work to push it aside, if we have invested in the infrastructure we need, then people will have the patience. We know that South Korea held their single largest election in April in the midst of COVID-19. So there is no excuse for us not being able to do this work. What has to happen is that our will has to meet our obligations. And that is that we have to have the resources from the federal government, the commitment of state leaders, including secretaries of state that unfortunately have practiced voter suppression in the past. But together we can make this happen. And we have to have the patience of the American people to know that once they've cast their ballots, if we've done our part, we will get an answer. Leader Abrams, in your book, Our Time Is Now, you write about how you are the daughter of two civil rights activists. And actually, your father was arrested at the age of 14 for helping to register African-Americans to vote in Mississippi. Here we are in 2020, where the nation has been having for a, a national discourse around race relations in this country. Do you think that the momentum of this moment might be able to yield some results as it relates to upending voter suppression? I do believe so, but it, this is going to be a process. There's not a moment where we have not had voter suppression in our country. And so my mission right now is progress. How do we mitigate voter suppression so that more and more of the people who deserve to be heard are able to make their voices heard at the ballot box? How do we make certain that we understand that voter fraud is a lie, that it is rare and it is almost, it, I don't believe it's ever really affected an election, which is different than election fraud, but that voter suppression is real and that its intent is to defeat us, to convince us it's not worth trying, but that if we understand that it exists, if we fight back against it, then we have the ability to shape the future, especially dismantling structural racism for the first time in our country. 
It's going to take time. It's going to be more than just a single vote. But this vote in 2020 is an important start. Leader Abrams, as you have uh, campaigned on this issue as well as for progressives across this country, you are often seen as a potential vice presidential pick for presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden. Uh, how has that conversation impacted your advocacy work? And what type of vice presidential pick do you hope the Biden uh, team selects? I've been doing this work since I was a college student. I've been working on voting rights because my parents raised me to understand that the power of a citizen begins with the power to vote. And that is why, in the wake of the 2018 election, I founded Fair Fight. It's why I'm also focused on the 2020 census, which is just as important in setting the future of our right to vote because it determines our political districts. And that's why I created Fair Count. I have been working on this, and I will continue to do this work, because I'm driven by the mission of making sure that we have the policies that right our country and that make us all eligible for opportunity. And I look forward to watching Vice President Biden select the person he wants as his running mate. There's no one who knows better what he needs because he's done this job. And I believe that no matter who he picks, I'm going to be shoulder to shoulder with them, making certain that Vice President Biden becomes the president of the United States and that we start to right our democracy and restore America. That was my interview with Stacey Abrams. She is the founder of Fair Fight and 2018 Democratic nominee for Georgia governor. She also, folks, is on that short list for presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden's vice presidential pick. And just as a reminder, Michael Bloomberg is the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, is a contributor to Fair Fight Political Action Committee, which was founded by Stacey Abrams to promote voter registration. All right, let's reset. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. You can find all of my reporting on Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Business app. Check out Stacey Abrams, Governor Whitmer, uh, Governor Larry Hogan. Uh, it's all on the Bloomberg website uh, as well. You know, folks, we're going to talk coming up with A.B. Stoddard about 2020. But, you know, I I'm on this, you know, kick of of how do we prevent the next virus, right? How do we prevent the next pandemic? Because the history books are going to be written on this. And they're going to look at what was good, what was bad, what was good, what was bad. But it's also a moment culturally around the world to relook at how we actually engage with one another. And I'm really excited to welcome to the program a first-time individual on the program, but someone who actually, many, many years ago, mentored me when I was just an intern at Men's Health magazine. I interned at Men's Health, uh, and Michael Easter was one of the editors there, and I, uh, him, him and I have kept up with one another, and I saw his recent piece in Outside Magazine. And I thought, this is spot on. This is fascinating. The headline reads, your fitness tracker might be able to predict COVID-19. So those watches, you know, those all those devices that people had at the gym, that actually, that health data could actually potentially be a signal for who is going to get COVID-19. Michael Easter, welcome to the program. He's a health journalist, author of the forthcoming book, The Comfort Crisis, and a professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Michael, what's going on with these fitness trackers? Kevin, thanks for having me. Uh, they're interesting. We're definitely entering some new ground where that Garmin watch or that, you know, whoop band or whatever you might have it, 
used to be this thing that was kind of for fitness nerds, and now we're sort of learning that maybe there's some interesting data that it holds uh, for public health, specifically, like you said, um, what are we going to do about the next pandemic, and what are some of the tools that we have to help control that, you know, if and hopefully, uh, hopefully it doesn't happen, but if it does, um, hopefully it can kind of give us an upper hand. See, I find this interesting because prior to the pandemic, so many of these health companies have been marketing these gadgets and these gizmos. Oh, track your steps. Oh, what's your heartbeat? How many calories did you burn? You know, you're at these fitness classes and you see the devices and, 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 and you're like, for me, I'm like, what, why do I need to know my sleep patterns? I don't sleep, you know, (laughs) but, but it's, but I think what your article in Outside Magazine points out is that fitness tracking companies pivot are pivoting from personal to public health. Walk me through that transition in the past couple of months about how these data fitness tracking companies have pivoted their use of the personal data to public health data. That's huge. Yeah, absolutely. So I think a really interesting story to think about is there's this guy in um, Finland. His name is uh, Petri Holman. And he decided to take a ski vacation in Austria, like right as the pandemic was sort of becoming a thing. You know, they were kind of like, should we do the ski trip or not? They looked at the data. There weren't that many cases. So he goes, he has his fun on his ski vacation. He says he was, you know, uh, sanitizing his hands every 10 seconds, that sort of thing. And he's a guy. We've all been there. We've all been there. Yeah, Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah. He, uh, he wears an aura ring, which is one of these fitness trackers. And so he does a ski vacation, gets on the plane, goes back to Finland. And, um, he decides, he learns that this area that he was at actually had more cases than they thought retrospectively. So he decides, you know, I'm going to stay home from work. I'm not going to go into the office. Now, one morning he wakes up and he checks his, his fitness device that gives you this, what's called a daily readiness score. More or less, it just kind of tells you, how's my body doing today? And he usually scores in the 80s or 90s. And he had the score of 50. And he goes, well, what's going on here? You know, this thing looks at, it, to get this readiness score, it looks at things like resting heart rate, um, your body temperature over the night, your breathing rate, that sort of thing. And, you know, if he was being a guy, he was going to be like, yeah, I'm fine. You know, I'll go into work or whatever. And his wife was a doctor, and she said, not so fast. I think you should actually maybe look into this a little bit. And he ended up getting a test, and it turns out he was positive for the coronavirus. He was the first public face of the coronavirus in Finland. Um, So what this basically means is that because these things are tracking these, you know, really intricate data points of our health, like I mentioned, your heart rate, your body temperature, et cetera, all the time, they can tell us things about how our body is changing. Now, if you look at something like uh, the coronavirus, when someone uh, is infected, right, they don't show signs immediately. It's not like someone coughs on you and then all of a sudden you're coughing. What happens is you get exposed and you have sort of this, like, incubation period. For two or three days, maybe you don't show symptoms but your body is actually showing symptoms that are imperceptible to you. So things like overnight, your body temperature will actually rise a couple degrees more than it normally would have. Now, this is something if you're wearing one of these trackers and it has that feature, it's going to pick that up and potentially flag it, especially in the future. Once we start to figure out what can these things really do for individuals and public health, there may be 
little things that ding up and say, hey, you might be getting sick. What's going on here? You know, stay home today. Because if you had this sort of advanced warning that these can give you, you would make different decisions during a time of pandemic, right? You probably right. would go to the grocery store. You wouldn't go visit your grandma or something like that. You might even not do something or like you had a walk. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you might not send your kid to school. And as as the country's having this national conversation, for lack of a better word, about whether or not to reopen schools, this data pertaining to health, it's not just individuals. This potentially could be a way to, to understand symptoms before the virus spreads. It, it, it's, it's fascinating. And in Michael Easter, who's joining us on the line, he's a health journalist, author of the forthcoming book, The Comfort Crisis, and a professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He's got this article in Outside Magazine headlined, Your Fitness Tracker Might Be Able to Predict COVID-19. In this article, you talk about how the major league sports leagues, including the NBA and the PGA Golf Tour, are actually requiring staff and athletes to wear some of these tracking devices in order to track the symptoms. Before I let you go, we have literally 60 seconds left, Michael. Uh, Before I let you go, um, I want to ask you, well, actually, let's keep Michael. Christine Barada, let's keep him forever the break because we we do got to run. But but quickly, you know, my dad's turning 70. Should I get him a fitness tracker device? I mean, is that is it? Should this be the gift that I get dad for his 70th birthday next week? That's a good question. I mean, if you think it might compel him to move a little more, I think that's going to do a lot for his health. You know, if he's a. My dad runs like three miles every day. He's like 70 years old. He's got two titanium knees, two replaced hips. He's like the Tin Man, and he's and he's running anyway. All right, Michael, stay with us because I got some more questions about the sports leagues and and sort of the sort of the the other transition into data. Michael Easter's going to stay us, and then AB Stoddard. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. It's Friday, folks. You made it. Congrats. Every Friday I say it. I say it's a barata. I never thought it would come. Never thought it would get here. 
Sure enough, right on time. Here it is. Michael Easter's on the line. He's a health journalist, author of the forthcoming book, The Comfort Crisis, and professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Michael, we're talking about your article in Outside Magazine, headlined, Your Fitness Tracker Might Be Able to Predict COVID-19. I got two more questions for you. This is, what, what are the sports leagues doing, and it could be a model for other institutions, both in the private sector and education, to track fitness or to not to track fitness to track health to prevent the spread of the coronavirus yeah so you have the nba has distributed the oral rings that we talked about a moment ago to all the players all the staff all the all the people working in uh, the, the disney bubble down there and this isn't the only thing they're doing of course players are still going to receive testing every single day in that league but it's just another thing they think could help. You have the PGA Tour has distributed whoop bands to all players and caddies and also staff. And they're also doing testing. But in that case, uh, the bands have actually paid off. There's a guy called Nick Watney who's on the tour. He's a player on the tour. And he noticed uh, his band told him that overnight his breathing rate increased pretty heavily. And he thought that was odd. Soon after, he had symptoms, and turns out that he had COVID, and he had to get pulled out of a tournament, and now he's going to have a sort of a 10-day break period, and then he has to test negative for two tests after to return to the tour. So you're going to see that across leagues. I know a lot of these uh, companies are talking to different leagues, and they're even thinking about, well, how do we do this even in a university setting for all students, uh, not to mention just student athletes who, you know, for exactly. the, the conferences okay. who haven't canceled their seasons. So here's my last question for you, which is, okay, people hear big data, they get nervous. So what's what are these companies doing in terms of responding to the nerves of some consumers who might be very weary of providing health data information to uh, to these companies? That's a good question. I mean, it's all going to these big algorithms that use AI. And I think that's something that, I mean, there's definitely going to be a debate about that, especially in the future. You know, they're talking about if we had enough people, could we almost have a public disease weather map that changes every day where it's like, don't go out today because we have all this data showing us that more people are potentially showing symptoms. I don't know. That's going to be something they're definitely going to have to think about. I mean, it's kind of the trade-off between, you know, private individual health data and then what do we need to do as a society to contain something like a pandemic you know when we're is, gonna have to have there's gonna be some trade-offs when does the book come out the comfort crisis comes out in april of uh 2021 all right well we will talk to you then for sure if not before then michael easter who also covers a lot about the military uh we'll have him on when he has another report out about uh, people serving in the military as well because he's been ahead of that as well. Michael Easter, health journalist, author of the forthcoming book, The Comfort Crisis, professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and my former mentor when I was an intern at Men's Health Magazine. What was I like as an intern, Easter? You were one of the uh, the top three of all-time interns, no question. You wow. Had a, you, had a, you did a hell of a job. We still talk about you, so... Yeah. Wow. You're, well, thank you. Who beat me? I got it. Hey, hey, Cirilli wants to know why he's not number one. Michael Easter, thank you for coming on. Let's reset. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. That's right, folks. I used to be an intern at Men's Health many, many, many years ago. But enough about me. Let's talk politics and bring in... 
two political all-stars, A.B. Stoddard, associate editor at Real Clear Politics, Roger Fisk, Democratic strategist, longtime President Obama aide, and principal at New Day Strategy. A.B., there was a shakeup at the president's re-election campaign. Ken, Stepien, get it back on track. What's he got to do? <laughs> um, he's, he's asked, he has to change President Trump. Uh, President Trump is uh, uh, the person who is screwing up the campaign and self-destructing politically, and uh, I can understand why he's upset that Brad Parscale overpromised on crowd numbers for Tulsa and has been making a lot of money um, as, as a campaign chief for Trump over these years, but um, I, poor Bill Stepien or anyone else who steps in is, is going to find that they're going to be blamed when things go south, not the president, uh, for stepping in every day. So it is a thankless, thankless job. All right. So, Roger Fisk, I, I was struck by the rollout of the Biden campaign's economic plan in which they had a very elaborate rollout uh, in terms of centrists flooding the airwaves, uh, also trying to appeal to progressives who want to see some type of climate change reaction. And and there wasn't as much of a concerted response coming from the right. And just and I'm not talking. I don't want to have a debate about about policy. I want to, to put your political strategy uh, or strategery. Remember that word, strategery. Uh, cap on for a second, Roger. In terms of, our, what are they, are, I mean, are they going to get it together? Are we going to have a real campaign fight soon? Uh, first off, Kevin, and thanks so much for having me, and it's great to be here with, with AB. I think there's a level of kind of exhaustion slash maxing out the bandwidth uh, in the Republican circles, where when you're defending the president on five and six and seven different fronts, um, you know, if you can peel off six or eight or 10 percent of your bandwidth to try to attack Biden, but I think Biden essentially slipped one past the goalie on this one, um, because this week, uh, you know, pretty much every single day there was a seismic stumble um, right. on, on the part of either the incumbent or the incumbent's campaign. And I just, you know, in the, in, the, in the context and in the process of mopping up after each one of those every day, I just don't think that they had the firepower to go at Biden um, as they would have in a normal uh, news cycle. I think slip past the goalie is, is a really good analogy because that's, that's what it feels like. It feels like the goalie isn't watching. And there's well, like that's these... why I'm here. A.B. <laughs> Stoddard, you know, Kellyanne Conway earlier today at the White House told reporters that she wants the campaign to have some of the same swagger was the word she used from back in 2016. Frank Luntz tweeted out a photograph of him inside the Oval Office. Frank, of course, is one of the uh, dominant political pollsters in Washington, D.C. Uh, so him being there, it, it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what they what they discussed. But, you know, Kellyanne also made the point of. She wants the president to have more daily coronavirus task force briefings to, to get back on the airwaves, to get back ahead of this. And I'm curious what, whether or not you think that strategy needs to happen just from a strategic standpoint and less so about you know the policy debate. Well, unfortunately, the substance of COVID is the most important thing. The president right. has abandoned the virus. Uh, he's put it in the rearview mirror. He's in total denial about it. He's um, subjugating science, but also literally hiding data from us now, from the American people, like we're in, you know, some dictatorship. And it is truly frightening because this is the story 
that everyone pays attention to. So there's tons of Americans who are not MAGA. They're not never Trumpers. They don't follow politics. They don't right. know that much about Donald Trump at all. And they don't know what he did with Ukraine. They don't know why he was impeached. They didn't follow the news. They didn't care. They moved on with their lives. And somehow this pandemic rolls in and frightens, you know, almost everyone in this country, um, afraid it's going to touch some part of their life or their family or their community. And they tune into these daily briefings that sometimes went on for two hours where the president was completely off his gourd. And members of Congress couldn't even watch them of his own party. They were so crazy. He would berate the press. He would go off on his magical cures, um, promotional, you know, at jingles, hydroxychloroquine, Lysol, Clorox, you name it. And it was ethically, historically disastrous. And so you had Americans who don't consider themselves involved in politics, political junkies. engaged in the news. No, just Living their lives is yeah. the one story that consumes everything. It's the one yeah. story he can't wish away, and he can't scandalize it away with a new controversy. So what you see from Ari Fleischer and obviously Kellyanne behind closed doors and all these Republicans in their tweets and their, and their public comments on TV is them urging him to take the virus seriously. It is a once-in-a-hundred-years okay. emergency. And if he does that, then surely the voters will give him a second look. It's really late for him to take the virus seriously. I beg him to do it tonight because we're in but, so much trouble. yeah. All right, we'll stay on the line, A.B. and uh, Roger. We've got more to continue this conversation coming up next. I'm Kevin Cerilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cerilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I love that song. I'm Kevin Cerilli, Chief Washington Correspondent. For Bloomberg TV and for Bloomberg Radio. What am I getting my dad for his birthday? He turns 70 next weekend. Let's ask the panel. Let's get some ideas. A.B. Stoddard, A.B.'s a, a, a genius on politics uh, and, and, you know, a consummate insider in the nation's capital. She's an associate editor at Real Clear Politics. Roger Fisk, Democratic strategist, longtime President Obama aide and principal of New Day Strategy. Here's a funny story I'm going to maybe regret telling. But when I first got this radio show, (laughs) um, I was very grateful. And one of our early guests was both Roger and A.B. And my father actually was like, A.B. Stoddard's going on your radio show. That's amazing. That's so cool. And I told A.B. this. And she's like, no. You know, she's very incredibly humble. Uh, but A.B., what should I get Nick Cirilli for his big seven zero? Wow. This Maybe is a really... book that you're long overdue to write. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, it's so interesting. I highly recommend this book that I read in quarantine by Michael Singer called The Untethered Soul. You know, we've all had to do a little mindfulness training. Yes. Uh, we've learned yes. to live in the day. I'm stoic. Um, I'm and, stoic. Yes, and, and, and I'm reading a little bit about the Stoics again. So anyway, The Untethered Soul, Michael Singer, it's an, it's, it's a, it will really open your eye. I actually just find it the most helpful um, book I've read of that ilk, you know, and it, and it really stays with me. Um, and it's, I think it's started to calm me down. It's a wonderful, wow. wonderful book. The you know, Untethered I, Soul. This is right up my dad's alley because when I remember, he would always put us in the car when I was a, a toddler. Maybe I was a loud kid. Hey, who would have thought? And uh, he would listen to Stephen Covey. 
Remember him? Stephen Covey on tape. And I was like six years old. And I'm like, Dad, what are you listening to? Like, come on. Put on Sesame Street. Uh, Roger Fist, Democratic Strategist. What do I get, Dad? I'm thinking a subscription to master classes. No, that's, that's not. My dad, can, my dad can barely figure out Zoom. I got to be candid. Well, you know? Well, we'll figure this out now. It's basically just clicking on like a, like a YouTube video. It's, it's, it's not really a high threshold. Plus, it'll help him get over it. <laughs> all right. All right. I'm adding it to the list. All right, guys. It's time for my favorite part of the show. What is on your <laughs> What is on your radar? Uh, and, uh, you know, give me some foreign policy. Give me something nuanced. AB, I'm going to start with you. What's on your radar? Well, I've kind of thought it's been really interesting to see the new sudden urgency with which the administration sees the um, brutalization of the Uyghurs in China. Yes. Um, a, a tweet an hour ago from Nikki Haley, um, suddenly blaming the U.N. for lack of interest in human rights in China. Uh, it's, it's been an amazing thing. It's obviously a concerted effort to get Pompeo and Barr and all the lieutenants at the highest level of the Trump administration, but not Trump really himself. He says China virus, but he doesn't really come out. He just says things like, oh, we have this trade deal, but I'm not really talking to them now. Um, but it's always been Trump, who the administration, who the team has dragged to the table on confronting China. Uh, he's usually on the phone with G saying, you know, help me win an election, re-election, and buy some soybeans, according to John Bolton. And he, we know what he did to vouch for the Chinese throughout the first three months of COVID. So it, it's going to be so interesting in these last less than four months to see if it ever actually is verbalized by the president himself. And, and where they go with this. It's, it's a great kind of, you know, straw man and a big thing to, you know, rhetorical cudgel. But what's it really, you know, what are they really going to end up doing? I know there's been a slight movement on some things, South China Sea and Uyghurs, but since when did the administration take this situation in the South China Sea or, or what's happening to the Uyghurs in those camps seriously until this summer? Well, I, I'm struck by this. Let me follow up on this with you, A.B., because Secretary Pompeo, I think, uh, and now Attorney General William Barr have also increased uh, in terms of the policy that they could be lobbying against Beijing. They've really increased their rhetoric. Pompeo has been consistent on this, I would argue, in terms of where his positions are. He's clearly articulated his, his viewpoint. So do you anticipate that there be additional actions that are taken even before the election that are largely now nonpartisan? No, that's what I'll be watching for, because in the, in the end, it's really hard for the China Hawks to ever get President Trump to come on board. That's what I mean. He's usually yeah. the most reluctant. Yeah, very, very good. Roger Fisk, what's on your radar? Um, I want to take one or two quick bites at the Trump organization, since I missed that in the earlier segment. Um, you know, what the, their failure in the Tulsa rally was not just not filling that stadium, but it was pumping those expectations for a week, A, I worked in 30 states in the first Obama campaign, and the less I had headquarters on my back, the better in terms of like what I had to do in a given city. So the fact that they were willing to hang the COO out to dry as being responsible for what happened in Tulsa is very interesting. And then to echo and somewhat agree with A.B.'s points from earlier, these folks need to understand it's not that difficult. This is the, the, the COVID challenge is not a challenge in terms of what they say. They keep thinking it's a messaging thing. It's a challenge yeah. of what they do. And if they want to be perceived differently, they need to behave differently. And then finally, uh, to answer your specific question, what's on my radar screen, I am going to wager, and I will bet you both a beer, that by roughly the week following Labor Day, um, especially with Frank Luntz in this equation, there's going to be data put in front of the president that says your only path to winning 
is mail-in voting. And you're going to hear that tune change very quickly. Wow. Really? So you think they're going to change the Trump orbit will change their mind on mail-in voting? If you if you can put data in front of the president that says your average 70 year old in the I-4 corridor of Florida is not comfortable leaving their house, they're going to come up with a way for that person to vote. And there's only one real way that can be implemented between now and then. You're going to hear that, that that's just going to be a 180 degrees seismic change. And if I'm wrong, then I owe you both a beer. Wow. That's that's uh that's that's really 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 interesting. All right, here's the thing that's on my radar, and I want to get a little wonky for a second. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin says that the United States should weigh forgiving small PPP loans. Some businesses complain that the application process is too long and complicated, and Secretary Mnuchin is saying that more targeted help for small business is needed. Saleh Mosin and Mark Niket reporting on the Bloomberg terminal that the federal government should weigh for giving all small loans provided under the Paycheck Protection Program during the coronavirus pandemic. Wow! We should, we, quote, we should consider forgiving all small loans, but would need fraud protection, end quote. Mnuchin said this before the House Small Business Committee earlier today. The government has approved more than you ready for this. They've approved more than 4.9 million PPP loans that total $518 billion. That's as of last night. Now, what's fascinating is that Secretary Mnuchin doesn't specify what he considers a small loan. But for anybody listening, for anyone listening, and including our panel, AB and, and Roger, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that some of these small businesses they're still waiting for the cash that they needed three months ago in order to come. I was very, very confused. Um, That's a neutral word, right? Confused that based upon my reporting over the past several months, there didn't appear to be in either party a massive, cohesive, organized, structured, you, you get the point, it's really soapbox, concerted effort to educate the public and small businesses on how to get these small business loans. The big businesses have all of the, you know, plugged in circles here in Washington DC, but it's those small businesses that they they how are they supposed to know? They were they were trying to figure out whether or not they were allowed to stay open and, uh, and comply with 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 everything. We've got like a minute left I mean, here the side. I I I don't think it's a question of choosing businesses that will or will not pay back. I think it's they have to go through and choose the businesses that they're embarrassed that they gave money to. They gave wow. money to the Los Angeles Lakers. They gave money to Planned Parenthood. They gave money to Grinder. That's why they want this stuff to go away, because it's it's the result of incompetence. Well, and, and you know, I think it's a, it's an ill, we got to leave it there. All right, A.B. Stoddard, thank you, Real, Associate Editor, Associate Editor of Real Clear Politics, and Roger Fisk, Democratic Strategist, longtime President Obama aide and Principal of New Day Strategy. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. Have an amazing weekend. Have an amazing weekend. Enjoy it. Unplug. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg 99.1. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.